Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to episode 41 of The History of Skipton, with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book, The History of Skipton. In the last episode, I tracked the development of elementary school education in Skipton. I think I should start this episode with a quick recap of the situation in the town in 1900. There were five schools established, all linked to religious communities. There were two Church of England schools... Parish Church, by this time on Otley Street, and Christ Church, on Craven Street. The Roman Catholics had established their school on Gargrave Road. The Wesleyan Methodists were at Water Street. And fifthly and finally, members of the Congregationalist and other non-conformist communities sent their children to the British School, just off Otley Street. The Skipton schools were not part of a local school board and thus funded entirely out of local taxes. They maintained their independence, but the price to pay for not being funded out of local taxes was an annual struggle to meet their costs. After 1870, the government refused to pay for building improvements, but it did provide more in the way of capitation funding to keep them running. At the same time, there was a big decline in subscriptions or donations to the schools. These donations came from wealthy or philanthropically-minded members of the church communities. They had been regularly asked to pay for new buildings and meet outstanding loans for these new buildings. And so these donors were a little more reluctant to pay for teachers' salaries on top. The Earls of Thanet, would help fund parish church school, lived in Kent, and by the year 1900, they had little interest in Skipton, other than as a source of rents. Their family no longer contributed to the school in the latter half of the century. The mill-owning Dewar's family was the chief supporter of the British school and in 1899 they accounted for £120 of the £125 donations the school attracted that year. So the picture is one of church schools building up debt, not having funds to improve the fabric of their buildings and struggling on an annual basis to meet the running costs despite some government grants. And the 1890 Education Act saw the beginning of the end of parents paying for their children's primary school education in a system known as school pence. 
schools who scrapped or reduced the weekly fee would receive grants not quite as generous in order to make up some of the difference. Clearly, those schools which abolish school fees would be more attractive to parents. School pens had been a burden upon the working classes of the area, and now that elementary education was compulsory, failure to pay was a common reason for parents keeping their children away. For example, Water Street School's logbook in 1883 records that the children of two families had been dismissed from the school, quote, because they would not pay their weekly fees. Warning plenties have been given, but all have been received without attention being paid to them. So I have resolved to act. Logbooks at Christchurch and Parish Church schools record instances of non-payers being sent home until the fees were paid. The workhouse guardians paid the school fees of some of its child inmates, and at Parish Church, wealthy spinsters, Miss Alcock and Miss Birtwistle, eased their consciences by paying the fees of a few poor but church-going families. The effect of the 1890 Act was to quickly reduce school pens in Skipton. At the British Parish Church in St Stephen's School, the cost was now one penny a week for children in Standard 1 and 2. And here I must point out classes were split by ability rather than age. Children went up to the higher levels by passing a test at the end of the year or suffered the ignominy of staying down a year. So it was a penny a week for children in Standard 1 and 2, two pennies for Standards 3 and 4, and three pennies for Standards 5 and 6. It was more expensive at Water Street, by one penny at each level, and cheaper at Christchurch, where it was free schooling up to Standard 3 and two pence for Standard 4 and above. Of course, this part explains the reason why, why Christchurch had the most pupils by the end of the century. Attendance at school was far from the high levels expected today, much to the frustration of school managers and head teachers. Not only was a school paid for average attendance, but top-ups were given for passing examinations. Thus, a school might have 300 children on its books. But as average attendance was typically only about four-fifths attending on any particular day, then the school was missing out on a fifth of its revenue. And of course, the less a child attended school, then the less likely were they to pass their certificate of competence thus further reducing a school's potential income. Albert Hartley, head of Parish Church School, was quoted in the Craven Herald in August 1892 as stating at the school's prize day that 40% of children had missed more than a quarter of school days and 13% had missed more than half. He warned it was useless to expect the best exam results so long as that discouraging state of affairs continued. His solution was to provide entertainment for those pupils who attended for a full four weeks. Uh, to our modern minds, the entertainment might have been enough to put off the pupils. The entertainment was a slideshow on the Rhine and Switzerland, followed by readings from some of the pupils, 
topped off by violin and piano playing. Yet Mr Hartley was dismayed that only 165 of the 540 parish church pupils passed the school certificate of competence. Primary school attendance was now compulsory, but there were all sorts of reasons why a pupil might not attend school. An exciting day in the town, such as the arrival of a circus or a troop of soldiers, a fire at a mill or even an important cricket match, were all noted in school logbooks as reasons for very low numbers on certain days. In 1895, the school attendance officer was moved to visit the Monday cattle market in the town and warn those employing children who should have been in school but were manning pens, moving beasts or running errands for a few coppers, that he would not hesitate to prosecute cases in future. Parents not having the money to pay for the schooling was also commonplace. For example, Christchurch Logbook of 1882 records that the Stassens were staying at home because they had no boots to put on. When cattle or horse fairs were held, attendants also suffered because the children obtained temporary jobs driving, sweeping or running errands to boost the household coffers. Haymaking was another time when attendants suffered. Head teachers also noted that girls were more likely than boys to miss odd days. They were needed to help mother with the household chores such as sewing, washing and cleaning, so they were kept away from school. Another reason for poor attendance was the closure of a school due to epidemics. In 1887 and again in 1897, an outbreak of measles prompted the Skipton Medical Health Officer to close all schools to prevent its spread. In 1900, scarlet fever also caused all schools to shut down. Individual schools could also be closed if there was an outbreak, typically for a period of three weeks. Irregular attendance made it difficult for teachers to prepare pupils for annual exams. Yet those same exams determined the size of the government grant to the school, and thus indirectly the salaries of its teachers. To boost attendances, school headmasters divide all sorts of ways to encourage parents to make sure their children did not miss. Fees were reduced. Typically, a third week would be free if the previous two weeks had been fully attended. There were prize-giving days at which pupils in classes might receive rosettes or sashes to mark their top attendance. A school attendance committee was formed with powers to fine parents for non-attendance, but the courts were unwilling to punish parents fiscally when their poverty might be the very reason for keeping a child away from school. Court reports in Skipton suggest that the magistrates were far happier to reach a don't-let-it-happen-again judgment rather than insisting on a fine for the parents. Once in school, children were taught the old favourites of reading, writing and arithmetic. But as the Victorian era progressed, other subjects were introduced. Girls, for example, were taught cookery at the old grammar school on Shortbank Road, where a Miss Baxter of the York School of Cookery had devised a system which provided for different schools to attend on certain days, 
in much the same ways as schools attended Skipton swimming baths in more recent years. History seems to have been rarely taught, other than a basic outline of kings and queens, but geography appears to have been a more important subject, even if it was really limited to finding places on the atlas and a knowledge of the rivers, hills and counties of England. Science appears to have become increasingly important, possibly because school inspectors made suggestions in that direction in their reports, and heads and school committees were eager to ensure that the man who controlled four-fifths of their finances was mollified. We know that Water Street children in the 1880s were dissecting rabbits, and in 1894, Alfred Hartley and two assistants from Parish Church attended a course on teaching science at Leeds College, a development which drew fulsome praise from the school's inspector in 1895. The 1902 Education Act put education in the hands of the county council. The voluntary schools continued, assisted from the rates. The Education Act also officially abolished the increasingly rare school pence and funded all primary schools out of the local taxes. In Skipton, that meant that West Yorkshire County Council, based in Wakefield, was responsible for primary school education. The condition of the British school buildings was a serious problem, however, for the new education authority, which immediately began to consider the construction of a replacement. A report detailed how the British school conditions were cramped, its playground was inadequate. Inside, the floors were stone-flagged, with old, creaky desks bolted to the floor. The rooms were dark, divided by curtains, and ventilation was poor. The new local education authority was clearly of the view that it was pointless to plough money into the premises when a new school, attached to no particular religion, should be built. Although there were mixed views as to whether it should be in heavily populated Middletown or in rapidly expanding Broughton Road. The decision for a new build was not without its critics. They feared that the closure would force the children from the British school, mostly from a non-conformist religious background, to attend a Church of England school. Even so, the new Brougham Street School, the first in Skipton to be paid for out of public funds, opened on March 27th, 1909. Its head was Mr Townsend, who had been head of the British School, which closed at the same time. This new Brougham Street School had a large central hall with 10 classrooms around it and could accommodate 540 pupils. Classrooms were divided by a wooden glass screen and there were separate entrances for boys and girls, as was the custom. At an opening ceremony, J.A. Slingsby, head of the education committee which had overseen the project, said that the old British school could not have been at work for so many years without improving the moral intellectual of the town. And now they took leave of their old home, where some of them spent many happy hours without a pang of regret at leaving such a faithful friend. As for the old British school building, 
It went on to house a series of small businesses, including a weaving shed in the 1920s, and more latterly, the printing works which it still is today. A second Skipton school also dropped its religious links as a result of the 1902 Education Act. The Methodist Committee running Water Street handed over control of the school to the Education Authority. The agreement allowed the school's trustees to provide, at their own cost, a half-hour service by a Wesleyan minister once each week. But otherwise, religious instruction was according to a set non-denominational county council syllabus. The 1906 obituary of the head teacher at Water Street suggests a less than harmonious absorption into the county council system. It said, with the taking over of the school by the West Riding County Council came a less congenial atmosphere, and there is no doubt that the worry caused by the harassing regulations of the new authority was an important factor in bringing Mr Walker's educational career to a close. You may remember I've said that the construction of Brougham Street was surrounded by arguments as to whether it might be better sited in Broughton Road. Work started on a school there almost as soon as Brougham Street opened. This was to be Ings School, which opened in April 1911 at a cost of £6,262 under its first head teacher, Oliver Tordoff. Ings was the 74th school opened by the West Riding Education Authority in just seven years since it had taken over the elementary school education. Sir John Horsfall, opening the school, commented that it was typical of West Riding schools that there was nothing extravagant in the buildings. They were functional, but they were far superior to anything re they replaced. He told those gathered that they had got a school second to none, and the inhabitants of the district and the children who attend it ought to be proud of it. Ings cannot be accused of setting its sights low, as it immediately organised an annual trip to London in its first year, and this was repeated until war broke out. The children, some as young as seven, left Skipton at midnight, arriving in London at 6.45am. After touring Fleet Street in the city, they attended the Empire Exhibition at Earl's Court before catching the midnight train back to Skipton, arriving home at 7.10am. An exhausting schedule for such young pupils. So, by 1914, the West Riding Education Authority had assumed full control of three Skipton schools. Water Street and the newly built Brougham Street and Ing schools. Three others... Christchurch, Parish Church and St Stephen's remain under voluntary control. The two new county council schools of Brougham Street and Ings created an over-provision of places and after the First World War there was a real threat to the existence of Water Street School. The building was owned by trustees and leased back to the council. But in 1922 the Education Authority declined to extend the full lease. 
It claimed that the number of scholars at the school and the number of vacancies at other schools did not warrant the continuation of the cost of the £2,000 annual rent. In September 1922, the school ceased to take children past Standard 3, typically nine years of age, and 98 older children were scattered across the other schools in the town. Four teachers, including the headmaster, George Langley, lost their jobs. Water Street struggled on in this way until the building was eventually sold by the Methodist Church in 1955. As a result, the County Council, now owners of the building, carried out a major rehabilitation scheme. One of the major changes was to remove a balcony, and Water Street held an official reopening in June 1957. Mrs Barge chairman of the Parent Teacher Association, asserted, Water Street had always been a happy school, but it had got drab with the passing of the years and it had lacked the amenities of the schools built more recently. The head of the relaunch school was T.C. Booth, who was to start its rise into the popular, successful school of the 21st century. The future of Water Street was a factor in a 1936 proposal to reorganise Skipton's council schools. The school leaving age was now 14. The county council proposed to close Water Street and build a new school on the Bailey, where the building society is now located. This new school would cater for all over 11s until the age, school leaving age of 14 and teach all under-11s at the existing schools. The Second World War ended all these hopes for a new school, but a change was brought about in 1943. Brougham Street would now cater for all over-11s. There was still talk of a new school on the Bailey, at some unspecified date after the war, but from 1943 onwards, 11 to 14 year olds were taught at Brougham Street. The health of Skipton school children during the 1930s depression was a major factor behind the introduction of a project to provide school milk in Skipton schools, which was introduced in 1934. The town's MP, George Rickards, was the main mover behind the scheme and he arranged for a local farmer to provide a third of a pint bottle of fresh milk daily to the primary schools. This, at Brougham Street School at least, and perhaps at other schools, replaced a daily dried milk provision for the pupils. There was one problem. The cost of a penny for each bottle, as poor children were forced to watch their more prosperous peers enjoy their daily third of a pint. In October, the price was brought down to half a penny per bottle, and the numbers taking milk at school doubled from 551 to 1,081. But that still left, of course, more than 500 children who went without milk. The scheme also provided a row among local farmers, as Rickards had gone straight to the chairman of the local milk producers, a man called Foster, who farmed at Bell Busk. His rivals demanded to know why they had not been allowed a share.
The milk scheme was the forerunner of a countywide scheme later in 1934, which simply absorbed the Skipton arrangement, but that too was charged except in cases of hardship which were means-tested. We know from a report to the Skipton Area Education Subcommittee that in Skipton, 1,214 children were taking milk daily. 19 could not afford it, and 354 were not taking milk for other reasons. The other reasons given were a mixture of a dislike for the scrutiny by county officials of personal circumstances of parents and the so-called means test. So the Education Committee came up with a wise solution. Headmasters would have full discretion to hand out free milk to any child who seemed in need. There was no longer a requirement for parents to convince a council officer that they really could not afford the half penny each day for each child. So as a result, free school milk was effectively introduced into all school Skipton schools for all pupils. It was to stay there until the 1970s. The West Riding County Council's role as the local education authority is generally looked back upon fondly. In 1935, it bought playing fields at Sandylands, previously rented from the Castle Estate, for elementary school sport, and even built a pavilion with changing rooms. In 1950, parish church school governors agreed to follow St Stephen's, Water Street and Christchurch, and relinquish is semi-autonomous status and become a voluntary controlled rather than a voluntary aided school. In other words, the county council controlled the schools rather than simply providing funds, although the religious communities could reserve places among the school governors. Water Street was the first to go into county council control, followed by St Stephen's and Christchurch, leaving Parish Church holding out the longest for its full independence. But the cost of upkeep of Parish Church school building was proving a severe burden. The problem was solved in 1958 when the County Council opened Airville School. Now, as stated, Children under 11 attended one of the Skipton primary schools and then either they passed the 11 plus and went to the grammar schools or they went on to Brougham Street. But when in 1958 the County Council opened Airville School for over 11s who had not been successful in the selection process, it seemed sensible to relocate Parish Church School to the larger Brougham Street site. So in February 1958, Parish Church, now controlled by the County Council, moved en bloc to Brougham Street. Another legacy of the West Riding Authority was the construction of a school where a significant proportion of the town's population was being rehoused. The foundation stone was laid by the chairman of the Craven Division Education Executive, Horace Fortune, 
in October 1952. Among the speeches, it was revealed that the school would provide room for 280 pupils in seven classrooms. And there had been an interesting debate about the name of the new school. Horse Close, where it was situated, seemed unattractive. Local councillor and Skipton historian Geoffrey Rowley suggested St Leonard's in honour of a former Lord Chancellor of Skip, who came from Skipton, Lord St Leonard's. The fact that he was born Edward Sugden and adopted the title of St Leonard's, a town in Sussex where he lived rather than his birthplace, diminished the chances of this suggestion being taken up. The choice they eventually came upon was Greatwood School. And Greatwood opened for the start of the new school year in August 1953. Ing's school closed in 2017 due to declining numbers and the future of the building is unclear as I speak. And that leaves us today with five primary schools. Greatwood, built by the council, while Parish Church, Christ Church, St Stephen's and Water Street all have their roots in the town's religious communities. A sixth school, the British School, had morphed into Brougham Street, which in turn morphed into Ethel. Before I finish, I've said nothing about Sunday and nursery schools. A key element of education in Skipton were the Sunday schools, run by the churches. Their lessons were essentially religious themed, although they did build upon the reading and writing skills provided by the Monday to Friday schools. The Skipton Sunday School Union was formed in 1860 to coordinate the actions of the Sunday schools. Most notably, and a mass parade through the town every Whitsuntide Sunday. In 1892, this Skipton Sunday School Union reported on the following number of pupils on its roll. Water Street Methodists, 500. Congregational Church, 395. Primitive Methodists, 240. Trinity Wesleyans, 224. Otley Street Baptists, 200. Belmont Baptists, 132. United Methodist Free Church, 100. In theory, and we're talking here of only the non-conformist Sunday schools, there was a grand total of 1,691 children and 184 registered Sunday school teachers. This was evidently a mainstream part of education even if it was religious-based. And even as late as 1950, a meeting of the Bradford Sunday School Union recorded that its Skipton branch had more than 500 children attending eight schools on a Sunday in the town. Less than 50 years later, there were none, although some Sunday school clubs run by the churches do keep the flame flickering. The story of the decline of the Sunday school movement is a topic for another day. As for education for the under fives, well, 
it was not generally considered appropriate until the 20th century. A local branch of the nursery school movement was formed in the 1930s with the intention of establishing a nursery school in Skipton. The idea was that the committee would raise funds locally and build the premises and the county council would take over the running costs and administration. It would have been the first council-run nursery school in the West Riding and was enthusiastically welcomed as a project by the West Riding County Council. A public meeting was held in Skipton in January 1937 and as a result, a committee was formed which included the heads of both Ermisteads and Skipton Girls High School and also Skipton clergymen. The committee identified a site on land off Chapel Hill, which has since been developed for private housing. The aim was not so much the modern concept of childcare to allow women to return to work, but to provide assistance to deprived or neglected children. As the socialist politician Lady Mabel Smith told the Skipton meeting, the 40 children admitted to the Skipton nursery would be selected on the basis of the needs of the child rather than the mother. The school regimen was given wide publicity. Provision would be free, although parents were expected to pay for meals. After arriving at nursery, the first task would be to help all children clean their teeth and don pinafores. If the weather was good, the morning would start with play in the open before milk was distributed and then educational games would be played before dinner. In the early afternoon, all children would be required to lie down on camp beds and rest for an hour before indulging in quiet educational games until they were collected at 4pm. Alas, the scheme never came to fruition. One of a myriad of plans which were shelved by the outbreak of World War II. The first nursery in Skipton was opened, however, in Otley Street in 1942, in a temporary building at the back garden of the Otley Street surgeries. The doctors had been keen supporters of the abandoned scheme of 1937, and the absorption of many women into war-related work reinforced the need for childcare. After the war, the nursery continued and in 1948 it was taken over by West Riding County Council. It's still housed in those temporary buildings almost 80 years later. Over the years there have been many changes in nursery provision. Today, as well as at Otley Street Nursery dating back to 1942, there are nursery departments attached to St Stephen's, Greatwood and Parish Church Schools. At the moment... Only one private nursery exists in Skipton, first, step, first Steps, albeit it is on two sites, one on Shortbank Road and one on Broughton Road. That brings to an end our look at the story of elementary education in Skipton. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time.
Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.